This is the Leadership and Insurance Podcast, brought to you by FinPro Search Partners. Insurance companies are businesses and they need to look for the long term and be sustainable. We went from zero to one and now it's going from one to a hundred. Insurance as, as a concept, as a kind of service, is brilliant. The execution is what we're looking at now. I think the companies that are going to succeed are the ones that are going to understand and master the art of intent. When we talk about innovation, we lean too heavily to think about technology and we don't think about creating a culture of innovation. I think innovation is essentially continuous improvement of existing processes and platforms and product, right? It's got to be easy. It's got to be seamless. Good morning and welcome to the Leadership Insurance Podcast. I'm your host, Alex Bond, and I'm very lucky today to be joined by Sean Harper, CEO of Kin. Um, Sean, um, this is this is unusual for us. It's normally normally I've, I've met you a couple of times before, but this is our first time of meeting. So uh, welcome to the podcast and thank you very much for joining me. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Not at all. Well, look, Sean, I, we've, we've got a very entertaining audience of InsurTech and insurance execs, and I'm sure they know who Kin are, but... Just just in case there's someone out there that's been hiding under a rock, um, please introduce yourself and, and, and the Kin business. So Kin is a company that I started in 2016, and we provide insurance to homeowners and other building owners in primarily catastrophe-exposed areas of the U.S. We've developed over the last seven years a lot of technology that allows us to be the best at programmatically understanding the physical properties of a building. And you know, if you have two homes side to side, they're going to get hit by the same weather, obviously. They're right next to each other. But they're going to react really differently. And one of the things that makes this hard is all of the homes, all of these buildings are idiosyncratic. They're all built differently by different people at different times. And they do respond very differently to the weather. So the, re- the reason why we think that's a really powerful combination is first of all, if you look at, well, historically forever, but especially recently, the part of the insurance value chain that has been compensated the best, that's had the best returns, the highest margins, et cetera, is the distribution part of the value chain. It's not uncommon to see insurance distributors who don't do anything special, really. There's no technology, there's no business model innovation that have 35% plus EBITDA margins. That's higher than Google. That's an incredible business. Mm. Second of all, if you actually hang out inside those insurance distributors, you'll realize that there's a lot of waste at what I would call the distributor carrier interface. Something that we learned from the credit card business, mm. we're able to say, hey, here's here's a cost, here's a type of trait about this home. We're able to identify it. And we know that it leads to a preferential risk outcome. So we're going to give a discount, right? Lower pricing. And we're going to really focus our marketing specifically on homes of that type. And so all the marketing we're doing, whether it's online or offline, we do a lot of both, are in channels where you can specifically target uh, an address. And that's that's very helpful because and it's a huge it's a huge advantage because if you think about how the legacy industry advertises they really only do two things they appoint agents so to put that in another context i would say they're buying shelf space in stores mm-hmm. like a serial company 
um, and they're doing brand advertising, you know, which cereal companies also do. But the the big, big, big difference between insurance and cereal is that insurance companies have idiosyncratic risk preferences, right? Like Kellogg's isn't going to be like, no, Sean isn't a good target for frosted flakes because you know, whatever, right? They, by definition, they want to reach everybody. And by definition, insurance companies don't want to reach everybody. Mm-hmm. And so the way that they have gone to market historically is really actually super inappropriate, I think. And the way we do it is much more appropriate because mm-hmm. we're embedding, you know, we're only going to market to the customers that we really think are a great match for the portfolio. So that's that's what Ken's been doing. Yeah, that's really, that's, that's super interesting, actually. I think that's an overlooked point, I think. You know, I think a lot of the, yeah, because one of the questions in my mind, you know, I've been in this market a long time, and um, it, and, and 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 you've been through that kind of journey of insurtech, which we've seen, which we'll probably get, you know, we'll get into in a, in a little bit. But the sort of direct consumer was always seen as that kind of very risky, have to spend a huge amount of money to compete, and the, and and the numbers they kept putting up were the numbers that, you know, the traditional established incumbents of any line of business would spend, and it would always be the billions of X. But to your point, yeah, there, there is always discretionary impact who you want to underwrite. So if you can only target those people, then obviously that's an impact on the cost of your marketing as well, which is, I think, is a simple but overlooked point. I, I don't know if you'd agree, but that it's, it's the sort of argument between people saying, oh, direct consumer is a bad idea versus actually the practicality of it, as you just explained. I agree. I would I would actually push back really strongly against the idea that it's a bad idea, even when executed crudely. I think it can be a very good idea. And the evidence that I'll I'll proffer on that point is that if you look at the aggregate sales and marketing spend, and for a company that is direct to consumer, like Geico would be a good example, I think it's like 5% of premiums. And if you look at the aggregate sales and marketing spend, including the cost of the agents of a non-direct to consumer business, like Allstate would be a good example of that. It's a lot higher. It's well above 15%. It's 20%. Well, that's a very significant cost advantage, Mm. right? Um, So I think one of the issues that people run into is that direct-to-consumer is an upfront outlay versus the agent, you know, you're you're really paying, you're actually borrowing money from the agents to acquire the customer. Um, And and so so I think even crudely executed, direct-to-consumer can be better uh, from a cost perspective. Especially if you're able to keep your customers for a long time. Mm. And second, when you add in this layer of really only specifically marketing to the right customers, you really sort of throw you know fuel on that fire because you might have a CAC that is, you know, 30% of the CAC that you would have if you're just mass marketing, right? If you're really targeted and you're only marketing to the customers that are really likely to convert and are a good match for the portfolio, you could eliminate the two-thirds of the marketing spend that's spent on folks who aren't. And then and then the story gets even better. Um, and I think for homeowners insurance, one of the things I think is really interesting is it's actually, I think, a better target than auto insurance for, for this. Um, and also keep in mind that outside of insurance, most consumer financial products are sold direct to consumer. Like insurance is is an anomaly in that sense. But the reason why I think homeowners insurance is actually better than auto insurance, which has gone, you know, not not even yet half half, but you know, the direct to consumer is growing in auto and has been for a long time. 
But homeowners insurance has larger policies and stickier policies. The churn rate is lower. And that gives you more premium dollars over which you can amortize the customer acquisition costs. And so I think it's actually a really excellent line of business to build a really significant direct-to-consumer business in. Yeah, the one thing that I kept thinking about as, as you were discussing that was 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 lifetime value. And and, and I'm sure you're clearly a man who's on his numbers about marketing. And uh, I suspect your, I mean, your prior roles and, and, and you know, Groupon really stuck out to me. Um, and in fact, you're the, you're the, the, you're the second guy to run the InsureTech that came from uh, Groupon. There's the, the guy in uh, Europe as well that I thought was interesting. And that you really understand the marketing and, and really understand that direct to consumer, but the lifetime value of a customer that you get with direct to consumer must be, must be much higher. I would imagine because it's a stickier customer. I think it can be. Yeah. So homeowners is a sticky line of business to begin with. Mm-hmm. And then if you look at the composition of the churn, a lot of the churn is actually precipitated by the intermediaries. Mm-hmm. Right. And the carriers encourage this. They'll pay a new business bonus or they'll pay a growth bonus or something. Well, what does that do? It creates an incentive for the intermediary to churn the portfolio. And we don't really have that, right? And we're also able to make decisions around pricing, around underwriting, around customer acquisition that do maximize the full customer LTV. And that's another issue is you just have, like I'm always on the watch out for misalignments of interest. And when you have people that have different incentives that are in the same value chain, you can often end up with sort of like wacky outcomes. And I think insurance is definitely one of those where you have very clearly different incentives in the distributors versus versus the carriers. And so the carriers are always on defense, basically trying to stop any sort of, you know, unfortunate behavior that that misalignment of incentives creates. So, okay, well, you can spend a lot of energy trying to trying to police this misalignment of, of interest. Or we could just do away with the misalignment of interests and have a single value chain where everybody throughout the value chain is aligned. And I, I just think that's a much more efficient outcome. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I was thinking about the UK market and it, you know, it's very price sensitive. Almost everyone buys, I would say, most people buy um, through a sort of marketplace type model. And the reason being is that you can't be sticky because that, that marketplace dynamic that we've all accepted drives a certain behavior and i know there's 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 legislation around this now but you used to get your kind of if you switch policy you'd get your introductory discount you'd get a much cheaper policy but then you never stay because next year you can always get a cheaper deal than staying put if you don't go in if you don't play that game which you're not you don't have those incentives and you don't have those hold-ups so if you're putting someone's premium up there's a reason for that it's not just oh We've got you now, so we're going to try and hike the price up. So, yeah, yeah. so you're you're not there's a, not a misalignment there, which is quite interesting to think about. In a, I know that's a very UK centric hat, although marketplaces are obviously taken off in the US um, as well. Um, yeah, it's it's one of those funny instances where the insurance regulators in the US get a lot of flack, I think, and it's not to say that they're perfect, but a lot of the things they do do make sense. Right. Like in most contexts, that sort of bait and switch pricing wouldn't be allowed. And I think that's actually a good thing for everybody involved, right? That you have stable pricing because it eliminates a lot of this wasteful churn that you do see in other markets like the UK. Um, And so there you go. Like the regulators are often, you know, helpful. 
Yeah, we've said a nice thing about regulation for probably about the first time, and we were about 215 episodes in short. <laughs> so, so you did well there, I'm pleased. Um, but no, I mean, joking aside, you know, I, I really want to dive into this as well because um, I was pleased that you were. Yeah. Well, actually, no, we'll, we'll back this up a bit. You know, there's um, you mentioned value chains of market perception. Um, how do you? I think there's a lazy narrative that puts you in a bucket of a few other insure techs around the same time, let's say like Hippo. Um, how do you differentiate yourself? Is there sort of an education piece that obviously people really in it, you think would be able to differentiate, but I would even say possibly they don't as well. So is that sometimes a challenge for you? I think it can be. Um, so a couple observations on this front. Uh, so in the zooming out a little bit, Innovation is messy and competition is really the only way to create innovation. Like it, what, why does not, why has insurance been sort of behind in a bunch of tech trends? I think a lot of it, you could show there's not, the, the reason is that there's not a lot of competitive intensity. So nobody really has a burning platform. Nobody has a reason to change. You look around, you have a lot of complacent incumbents. They're all running great businesses. They're all making a lot of money. Why would they do anything differently? They, I wouldn't if I were them. You need the upstarts to come in and mix things up. It'll, but also, they're not all going to work, right? And the, the VCs know this. They're well familiar with this because it's true in all these other markets where if you have four companies or five companies in a single vintage, maybe only one works. And different people are trying different things and some of them are going to work and some of them are going to work a little bit and some of them are not going to work. That's how innovation should work. <laughs> like, it's... The, I. I don't think it's a failure, right? Like we've actually, you know, there was a there was a whole crop of innovation. It's really pushed the industry. You know, some of them turned out to be successful businesses like ours, and some haven't. So getting into some of the, but but it is important to explain the differences. And so two things that I think are really unique about, or I'd say three things I think are really unique about Ken. And I'll so three things I think are really unique about Ken. The first is we've always had a really strong focus on unit economics. And I think one of the big mistakes that companies that otherwise might have been very successful made was they tried to scale businesses prematurely. Like the old like venture capital playbook, the old business school playbook is you iterate on unit economics until they're good and then you scale, right? And then, and then there was a counter pattern to that, which was the split scaling, which is like, well, maybe you can, maybe you can scale unit economics. Sorry, maybe you can scale customer acquisition before unit economics are good and change the unit economics later. Yeah. I think actually there are some businesses where that works. You know, you make the case that Uber or Airbnb, some of these network businesses, that's what you need to do. I don't think that's true of insurance. I don't think it's true of any area in financial services. I think the old pattern is the correct one. And so philosophically, like we've always just been like, hey, we're going to get unit economics first and we're going to scale it. And if you look at the issue with, you know, Lemonade would be an example, right? They have positive unit economics, but they're not that great. Their revenue per customer is low. Their churn is high. So they're working on figuring that out. I pro Probably they will, you know, they, they're good, you know, entrepreneurs, you know, they're going to figure it out. Um, and then you have some other businesses, you know, like, you know, Root or Hippo would be an example of this where their unit economics were actually negative. And I think that's really problematic. 
especially in the case because the other big difference between Kin and Hippo specifically, although we're both homeowners companies, is Kin primarily occupies from an economic perspective the distribution part of the value chain. Like that's where we make our money. Like sort of break, break even on underwriting, make money off of the fees that our competitors are paying out to the channel. Mm-hmm. Hippo has the opposite strategy. Um, you know, they primarily are an underwriter because the majority of their business is generated through external parties, right? Whether it's the whole builder channel, whether it's traditional IAs of which they have many, those guys are still getting the distribution economics, which as we talked about before, is the fattest part of the value chain. You also have still a lot of the misalignment of interests that exist in that context where you do have different parties doing distribution, different parties doing underwriting. So, you know, we're very, very different companies, even though we're in the same line of business. And I would also say that it's not obvious. It ha- certainly hasn't been obvious that Ken had the better approach. But there was a long time period where I was intensely frustrated because everyone asked us why we weren't growing faster. Yeah. Yeah. Right? yeah, yeah. Like, like the, those approaches looked really, really good. And in a certain market with a certain availability capital, they were really good. Um, right. Hippo grew a lot faster than us. They were kicking our butt for a long period of time on growth. Now, I still think we made the right call. I'm just sort of like a boring fundamentals oriented guy. I don't believe in scaling, you know, and our board is too, right? So I can't take full credit. Like we just didn't believe in that, right? Like we're like, oh, we're not going to try to scale these things before they have positive unit economics. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, so, so, you know, there's, there's a lot of different approaches and, you know, Mm -hmm. That's the whole point of capitalism is to try a bunch of different things yeah. and the winners shake out. And that's, that's good. That's how our economy works. I, I, the, yeah, I mean, insurance, the, the idea of the blitzscaling and insurance business where you have a balance sheet and, and where you take on risk always just struck me as odd. Like it always just struck me as odd because the, the difference about, right, you sell someone software, you don't sell them a software and then you can potentially lose more than the value of that software contract. <laughs> and, and, and that's, and I think that's in its core what I had a problem with them, but, but you know, I'm a fundamentals guy for myself. I think, you know, I did economics a long time ago at university. And then secondly, I used to work in the insurance industry and, and from an outside perspective, you just look at it and go, that doesn't make sense to me. It makes sense to me in the software world. It makes sense to me. You could blitz scale an insure tech software business. But pricing and raising capital as if these businesses, soft, uh, software businesses, just seem the wrong play. And and look, that's my hypothesis. I look like I'm moderately right at the moment, but that's easy to say in retrospect. And and the second thing is that that's also the state of play today. That doesn't mean it won't work out in the future, as as you rightly said. Um, well, I would well, I would just push back on that a little bit. I actually don't think that blitzscaling works that well in a software business. Um, I think probably the only context where it makes sense is in a business where you have really, really big network effects. Mm-hmm. And so that would basically be consumer marketplace business or per, per, maybe any marketplace business, right? Because it's like the value that's created by the size of the business. And I don't think that's necessarily true in software. Um, you know, there isn't value. There's actually inefficiency created usually by the size of the business. And so you really want your early cohorts to be good and you actually can lose money, right? Because you still have to provide the service. And so if you're pricing it at below your cost of providing the service, especially taking into account the fact that that software can be really, really expensive to sell, 
I'm not sure blitzscaling does work in software. Um, mm. Mm. Interesting. Yeah, no, you, I could say, yeah, I could see you being 100% right on that. Um, the, uh, the, although in my head, I'm going, yeah, but that's why my Uber's getting so expensive now. Because uh, <laughs> it's the only game in town now. Yes, um, exactly. What <laughs> about you in the UK? Unless you want an Uber, if you want to get an Uber and you want to go home quickly, if you're not selecting exec, you're not going anywhere. Um, but uh, yeah, we we digress. Obviously, we're touching on it a little bit there with that conversation. But you know, I wanted to know, you know, insurtech has been having a rough ride really for about you know year year and a half. Um, and look, we only provide talent to the insurtech market, so we've been right there with everybody. But um, you know, we have seen that people have come out stronger. You've obviously come out stronger. Um, what do you think has led to that strength? And also kind of, you know, you must be approaching the size and scale where you could have gone public. You know, was that on the table and then got took off the table? Is that in your future? I appreciate it. that's a very big open question, but, you know, think of that what you will, Sean. Yeah, um, we, we do see Ken as a public company. Uh, you know, I sold my last business and I wasn't super happy with the way things turned out. Um, you know, I think we're going after, we're solving a huge problem for society. If you think about like homeowners insurance is really, really important. And the ability to adapt that product to increase weather volatility, I think is one of perhaps one of the biggest societal challenges we have right now. Um, and so we, what we think we're, we're doing is something that's really big and important and transformative and something that we'll be able to continue doing for 50 years, for 100 years. You know, I want people to look at Kin as the boring, you know, slow incumbent 50 years from now. Um, and who knows what kind of crazy technology people will be doing. I'll be retired by then, right? I'll be in my 90s. Um, but I want Kin to live on. And, and, you know, the way you make a business sort of self-sustaining in that way is is you do take it public, right? You you create a really good profitable business. You take it public to achieve a low cost of capital and constant access to capital, and that's that's very much in our plans. Um, you know, obviously we want to get to a larger scale. Uh, you know, sort of probably twice the size we are right now, and we want to make sure that we're going into a market that's going to appreciate us. Um, and I think we're in a market right now that, you know, on the public side is pretty confused as to where the value lies. And, and so right, right now wouldn't be the time, but, but yeah, it's something, something we're, you know, actively working towards to do it. And when the time is right, we will, mm -hmm. um, in the meantime, we're just going to continue to build a business. That's really great. Yeah. 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 Which is the only route to do so. Right. And, and it's, um, uh, I've had, you know, we've done this podcast a few times where we talk specifically to investors and, and we do these kind of compilation episodes and it's, you know, it's been wonderful and, and people have been really generous with their time and talked to us a lot. And, you know, every, mostly it was VC and they were sort of watching the space and, and we're all waiting that first move or IPO that, 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 that does really, really well. And those valuations that just track up again, but, you know, I think it comes back to our point. It's got to be the right one. It's got to be the right valuation as well, you know, and, that, and that's, and that's the frustrating thing is that when people have been a bit scathing on some of these, it's like no one's entering these with real intentions. You know, everyone's going to the market with the best kind of possible hypothesis and their, their best guess. And and the same when with businesses IPO. So, you know, but um, but yeah, we watch with interest to see to see which ones which one's going to be that first mover to get it kind of get the dial back up there again. I think. 
<laughs> me too. Yeah, exactly. Won't be us. You mentioned it there, and I know we've got uh, this be the last question because I, I know we're pretty far on time, Sean. So, but you mentioned it there. We mentioned sort of responsibility to climate change, and like you know, what responsibility do you think we have as an industry to kind of to be responsive to these wider it, it, it issues? And and perhaps if I may expand on that, it's like what do you think we can best do to kind of set ourselves up for that? Um. <clears throat> Yeah, it's it's probably pretty different depending on the line of business. You know, one thing, the the two ways that we really approach this at Kin are first of all, humanity can adapt to the increased weather volatility, at least to a point, right? Um, you know, hurricanes are more severe now, where there's more hailstorms. Okay. That's a change that we can adapt to. We have to build our houses differently and it'll be expensive, right? So for us, we really take a lot of pride in developing technology that allows us to figure out which of the homes are built to, to withstand the increased weather volatility. In that create, case, you're creating a market incentive, right? Saying, hey, homeowner, if you invest in making your home really weather resilient, you'll get access to different insurance. You'll get more insurance. You'll get a lower price. Like that's That's good. It should help the market adapt. The other thing is the increased risk is making insurance more expensive. And you see this all over. It's literally everywhere, right? Like I live in Northern Illinois, which is not the hotbed of climate change, but my homeowner's insurance rate, which is not with kin, uh, because we're not in Illinois yet, went up 35% this year. That's a lot. And that's happening across the country. Um, It's really important that we don't have expense ratios stay the same, right? Because like, it doesn't make sense. If insurance prices double, we understand like the risk may be doubled. Maybe it did, right? And that's unfortunate. The cost structure of an insurance company shouldn't double, uh, right? Like that doesn't make any sense. So for us, we're like, hey, what can we do to keep the cost structure down? Acknowledging that the actual climate change and the actual weather is outside of our control, um, you know, at least our micro control. Uh, you know, per- personally, I'm doing everything I can to get my personal life to to carbon neutral, but it's really hard. You know, I try to do like one thing every year uh, on that path, but it's still a multi-year path. Um, and I think it is for society as well. So so we need to really focus on adaptation in the meantime. Mm. Yeah, completely. Uh, as you were saying that, I was thinking about the, um, you know, I, I, I tried to be, I was vegan for a very long time and it was always for environmental reasons. And then one of the reasons I sort of said, well, I, ne- I need a bigger, Thing to do was because I took about fourteen flights that year, and I was like, "Well, doesn't matter how many, doesn't matter how many Beyond Meat burgers I eat instead of uh, normal. It's uh, it's 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 a difficult thing." But I think bring it into the even in just having it into the mindset of your business and having it something that we think about and talk about on on podcasts like this is important because it becomes front of mind and 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 there should be a commerciality to it. It should be about focusing on your kind of unit cost um, as a way of making change because then it's positive change, it's profitable change, which we know is going to work. But if we if we don't make it profitable change, we know no one's incentivized to do that. So uh, anyway, I, sorry, Sean, I, I ended on my soapbox there. And it was so I love it. I'm with you. Yeah. <laughs> um, Sean, I know we're tight on time, so I won't keep you any longer because we promise we'll keep this inside a half an hour. So I've been wanting to do this a long time. Really love what you do over at Kin. Really excited to watch it. And um, look, I hope we get a chance to connect again in the future. But um, thanks for being a guest on the podcast. Thank you very much. Have a good day.